Music is faith's universal language. Our hearts are lifted, our griefs are acknowledged, our prayers are sung, and our faith is taught all through music. And this choir actually enacts the unity of the church. Each section has its own voice, its own part to play, but together they are more than the sum of their parts by God's grace. Our text of Scripture for this morning comes to us from Acts of the Apostle, the 17th chapter. This is one of the sermons in the Acts of the Apostles, and so we bring together both music and worship and Word. Listen for God's Word for you. Then Paul stood in front of the Oropagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human, by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Well, since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as you heard earlier, I had occasion a week ago to be in Decorah, Iowa for my uncle Weston Noble's memorial service at Luther College where he directed the Nordic Choir and the band there for over 50 years. He didn't go far from home, about 45 miles from the family farm, but he had a remarkable impact all over the world. Weston Noble was the guest conductor at over 900 choral events and workshops on every continent on the globe except Antarctica. Some of you may remember when Weston Noble was here and directed our own chancel choir along with the chamber choir from San Marino High School in 2008 for our carols of many nations during Advent. Weston died at the age of 93, and we celebrated his legacy 
Some of the speakers on that occasion included Craig Jessup, who was the former director of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I uh, came home from that event with a little honor that belonged to Weston. It was his award for induction into the Classical Music Hall of Fame. Now, I also had the occasion to visit the family farm that is still in the family where my grandmother was born in 1900. Back in 1996, over 20 years ago, the family farm received a Century Farm designation by the Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. My second cousin, Bob Noble, farms the land today. When I was a boy, that farm was Disneyland to me. We drove tractors, we rode ponies, we played King of the Hill in the hayloft, we retrieved eggs from under the hens in the chicken coop and cleaned them before placing them in shipping crates. We fed the pigs, and every once in a while we'd jump on one of them for a ride around the yard and laugh. Farm chores to me as a child were like riding the Pirates of the Caribbean or Space Mountain. Knowing my cousin had not yet finished planting this spring, on the Century Farm at the memorial reception, I asked him, what time are you going to begin planting tomorrow? I'd love to ride with you. Bob responded, I'm afraid I can't allow that. I asked, well, why is that? And I'm thinking, well, it must be some liability concern with his insurance plan or some space limitation in the cab. And he replied, well, because it will completely destroy your image of the hardworking farmer. Then he began to count to himself, and finally, after he concluded, he said, I have six electronic systems in the cab that do absolutely everything. I don't even drive the tractor. It's all done by GPS. It's a driverless car, essentially, but you don't have to worry about traffic out there in the field. He concluded, the only thing I control is the air conditioning and the radio. It's remarkable, really. Those seeds are planted at the precise depth and spacing determined by the computer. And it's part of the reason that the American farmer can produce so much more per acre than subsistence farmers in other parts of the world. Farming is increasingly scientific, and it brings together knowledge from a variety of different fields of study to produce the kind of food that we can in this country. But there are still several steps to preparing the soil to receive the seed. First, the ground has to be disked to turn the topsoil and the mulch from last year's harvesting into the ground. And then the ground has to be raked so that it breaks up the clumps and smooths the surface. And then the seeds are planted in this highly precise way. And because of that, the yield per acre can be as much as 200 bushels per acre. Now, Jesus once told the parable of the sower of seeds. He said, a sower went out and sowed. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and they sprang up quickly. But since they had no depth of soil, 
When the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seed fell on good soil and bought, brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This was obviously a less high-tech sowing of seeds, but the result was a crop of about 25% of that seed proving fruitful. The rest of the seed was just as good, but it fell on ground that was not fertile or prepared enough to receive it and nurture it into life. Now, our text today tells of the continuing growth of the early church as the gospel is spreading throughout the region and, as it says in the first chapter of Acts, to the ends of the earth. The community of faith is on the move. And Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the gospel was being proclaimed in synagogues, and now it's encountering Greek culture in this text. No longer is the seed producing the fruitfulness like it did for Peter in the early chapter of Acts where 3,000 became believers after one sermon. I think my record's about 2,500. But, uh... but it reads here at the conclusion of this text, but some of them joined him, Paul, and became believers, including... Dionysius and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what about this method by which Paul preaches this sermon? This is what intrigues me this morning. And like my cousin, he seems to use a three-step process to prepare the seed or to prepare the ground for the seed. He begins by complimenting them and finding common ground with the Athenians. I see your religious people in every way, and I found this altar to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. You found a way in. This is like disking the field and mulching the soil. He then challenges their current belief and understanding. The Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands. Here he challenges the idolatry of the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers. He's smoothing out the topsoil. Then he proclaims, we ought not to think that deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Recently I had an opportunity to hear a lecture by Tim Keller, pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he lectured on the theology of Leslie Newbegin, including especially how the gospel relates to a pluralistic society. And in Keller's analysis, the very first important step is this. Incisive public apologetics critiques the roots. You can see here in the 17th chapter of Acts how Paul is engaging in a critique of the very roots of the philosophies 
of the Greeks. He challenges their foundational assumptions and convictions. And then he proclaims that God has sent his son Jesus into the world to save it and has demonstrated his power by raising him from the dead. The seed is planted. But apparently the soil is hard. Like that which fell on the road in the parable, the birds came and gobbled it up. Paul's sermon at the Oropagus is a hill north of the Acropolis is literally called the Hill of Ares or the Mars Hill in Latin. And it's a place where the Athenian court would meet for discussions. Paul had obviously secured a forum for some important discussion and proclamation of the gospel. According to Will Williman, the Arapagus was a place where, quote, the Athenians spent their days doing what intellectuals enjoy, relieving their boredom by searching for new ideas. Novelty attracts their attention more quickly than truth, end quote. Both Paul and Socrates were both accused of introducing new gods. So here is Paul in Acts of the Apostles as something of a virtual Christian Socrates. Early in Christian history, during the second century, a debate raged in the church over the value of philosophy for understanding Christian theology. What relationship, if any, should there be between one kind of knowledge and another? Justin Martyr believed that philosophers like Plato and Aristotle had a measure of ultimate truth that needed a more complete understanding informed by the insights of those who were believers in Jesus Christ. But Tertullian disagreed. He believed that the attempts to blend philosophy, philosophy and Christian revelation were at the roots of heresy. Athens was the seat of philosophy, the great location of a library in ancient times, and Jerusalem was the seat of religion, the home of monotheistic faith, and this faith of those committed to Christ. So Tertullian famously wrote, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Well, it seems to me Luke in Acts of the Apostles may have agreed more with Tertullian than with Justin Martyr. What's all this mean? How do we proclaim this faith that we believe in? I think most of us are a little uncomfortable when it comes to actually talking about our faith especially to those who don't share it. And yet we too are called to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So how do we approach such conversations? Well, perhaps this method from the text is a place to begin. First, look for points of common interest. Find a way to bring up the subject based upon mutual interests with the people that you're interested in in talking to. 
Maybe it's concern for the discretion, or excuse me, maybe it's concern for the direction of our society or the lack of honesty, integrity amongst our leaders. Maybe it's concern for the next generation. Then contextualize our speech. Speak in the language of your listener. I remember when I purchased the World Book Encyclopedia for our children back before we had the internet and Google searches. The salesman told us that when our child would look up a particular word in the encyclopedia, it was defined in language that would be age-appropriate for them when they looked it up so that they wouldn't have to look up the words in the definition to be able to understand the word they were trying to understand. What good would that do? Contextualizing the message allows the person you're talking with to understand it in terms that they can understand. We often, in my early years in ministry, talked about earning the right to be heard. There's an old saying, I don't care what you know until I know that you care. Contextualizing the message of God's good news to us in Christ is essential to creating understanding and interest. And finally, we're actually expected to know something about our faith and to be able to articulate what we believe and why we believe it. Many of you are familiar with the text of Scripture from 1 Peter that says, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Now, apparently, that is what is so attractive about God's people. The hope that's within them. We are to be like that tree in the first psalm, planted by streams of living water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they prosper. So disc the soil, rake it, and then plant the seed. And in that way, we too become part of sharing the good news of God's salvation known to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.